This is the Padverb Podcast, and I am your host, KMO. Remember, a few weeks back, I talked with Richard Firth Godby here, and we talked about describing emotions and interstates and whether somebody who writing 2,000 years ago described being afraid or happy, they didn't use the words afraid or happy, they were speaking a different language, but they've been translated as fear and happiness. Was that the same feeling that you and I might feel when I say I'm afraid or I'm happy? And do I mean the same thing that you mean when you use those words? It's really hard to know, although... Just to get along in the world, we assume that the answer to that question is, yeah, pretty much. Well, to make the issue even thornier, in this episode of the podcast, we're going to question whether an emotion even is an internal state that you feel. (laughs) What else might it be? Well, I'm not giving anything away. The concept that will be the centerpiece of the discussion in this episode is right in the title of this week's guest's book. The guest is Professor Bacha Mesquita, and her book is Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions. Bacha Mesquita is a social psychologist and an affective scientist and a pioneer of cultural psychology. She is a professor of psychology at the University of Leuven, Belgium, and I'm reading from her bio here on Amazon.com, which is the same as the bio for her book, and it lists many other universities where she taught. Skipping over those... Just suffice it to say, she has a lot of academic experience. Mesquita is one of the world's leading authorities on the psychological study of cultural differences in emotions. Her most recent research focuses on the role of emotions in multicultural societies. She studies how emotions affect the belonging of minoritized youth in middle schools and the social and economic integration of newcomers, i.e. newly arrived immigrants. Mesquita has been a consultant for UNICEF and the World Health Organization, and most recently, she was a member of the core group of scientific advisors for the Happiness and Well-Being Project, an initiative of the Vatican in partnership with the United Nations Sustainable Development Solutions Network. And now, here's my conversation with Professor Bacha Mesquita. This is the Padverb Podcast. I'm your host, KMO, and I am joined by Professor Bacha Mesquita. Welcome. Hi, KMO. Thank you for having me here. Oh, it's good to talk to you. Uh, I've been listening to the audiobook of your most recent book, the title of which is Between Us, but it has a fuller title. What's the full title? It's How Cultures Create Emotions is the subtitle. How Cultures Create Emotions, and uh, maybe an even longer title could be How Cultures and Language Create Emotions. That is right. I, I think of language as, as one part of culture, but certainly not the only one. Well, let me invite you to talk a little bit about your own cultural background just to get us started. I grew up in the Netherlands and I pretty much was there until I was about 30 years old. I actually, I did some, I I went to Italy, I worked in Bosnia for UNICEF for a while. Um, So I did do some, uh, I was outside of my country, but the first real time that I was outside of my country and that I really felt the cultural differences was when I came to the United States. And that was in 1993 as a postdoc to the University of Michigan. And I had not expected to feel anything, you know, to have any particular uh, experiences because I spoke English. I was, I knew where I was going. I had, I had a job, I had a place to live. Um, But I actually felt 
emotionally uncomfortable in a way that I hadn't felt before. So I think that's that's part of the story of this book is that even after I had started to study uh, the role of culture and emotions, I was still surprised to learn how much culture played a role in my own emotions. Well, both the Netherlands and the United States are weird countries. Would you describe what I mean when I say they're weird? Yeah, it's, it's a shortcut that was introduced in 2010 in a, an article by uh, Hendrik and an anthropologist and some psychologists, uh, colleagues, and it means Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic country. So we are actually, you would think that we were very similar and we probably are in a lot of ways. There are certainly cultures that are much more dissimilar than the United States and the Netherlands. And I would also not say, just to be clear, that those are the United States, especially, is a, is a huge country. And of course, there are many cultures within these national boundaries. So what I'm talking about really is, is a change of context, the context that I was in in the Netherlands, the larger context and the context that I was in the, in the United States, pretty similar. They were weird. They were middle-class, educated context, and yet I felt that my emotions had a misfit with my environment. So, yeah, you're very right to point that out, that we are very similar in many ways. You write quite a bit about differences between um, English-speaking countries and Japan in the book. But before we get to Japan, I mean, let's, let's stick with the Netherlands versus the United States. What were some of the first things you noticed about emotional differences uh, when you got to Michigan? or North Carolina? Well, I, I think they're slightly different, but in Michigan, I was um, thrown off by the, by the constant optimism, gratitudes, um, niceness. And you may think, how can you be thrown off by that? There, there is nothing, <laughs> but I just didn't know what they meant. And I also felt that I didn't reciprocate in the, in the right way. So what I people would compliment my, me or or thank me and I would stand there thinking what does this mean I didn't do anything or you know they would they would talk about me in a way that made me stand out and I would have a response of embarrassment they would say this is the expert on x and I would think I would say something like well expert is a is a big word and I would move my eyes I would cast my eyes down and not know very much how to respond. So people, on the other hand, found me a little rough or not. Uh, you know, I would say if somebody said to you, do you, do you feel like coming for lunch? I would say, well, I can't this afternoon. And, you know, I, di I didn't do the uh, making each other uh, feel good ritual that Americans have with, oh, I would love that. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Um, I, I just have a different, um, something different come up this afternoon. Can we do it another time? So I didn't really play my part. And I think, you know, it's, it's uh, you could of course say, well, that's not about emotions. That's about rituals. That's about how people, how people do rather than how they feel. But I've come to think that, no, it is really how people feel. How people feel has everything to do with what they want to do in the relationship, what they want to accomplish in the relationship. So in an American context, I think the main goal, the, the, thing, the thing that we're working on, and I, I say we because 
I do it now when I'm in an American context, I think, is to make each other feel good and feel good about ourselves also. I would say in the Netherlands, it's not that. It is to maybe be close, to be on equal footing, to be direct and really connected. And so really connected also means just saying what is on your mind, even if it's not so pleasant or No, I actually don't feel like going out to lunch this afternoon. That might be a little on the rough side, but <laughs> but you could, you know, no, not to, not today. Or so I think what people do is is really different. Now in North Carolina, I would say there was a another thing that really struck me is that people are, and maybe that's generally more true for for um, the United States than for the Netherlands, is that people are not often indignant. I mean, you're angry at big things like, um, you know, the political divide obviously has brought out a lot of anger, but I don't think you're angry or indignant about your organization. You, you try to be, you try to be smooth. You try to be talking nicely to each other. That's not so much a goal in the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, it's a goal to express your deep opinion and feelings. So if that is, I think that my university should do something different about, you know, their policy or then you say that. And that in the in in North Carolina, I very much felt that my expressive and also negative expressive side was in violation with the norms. And maybe that was true a little bit in, in Michigan as well. You don't say, I feel I feel terrible. I mean, you could say that to a friend, maybe a real <laughs> friend. But, you know, I would, you know, people would ask me, how, how are you doing? And I would say, hmm, today is a lesser day. Well, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't what I was supposed to say. And again, I think, You know, you could say about some of those things that they're rituals, the way that we're we've learned to do those interactions. But I think it's a little bit more than that. I think it's the way we cultivate our emotional life together. Let's jump to some of the studies that you've done, because I, I notice often, you know, you'll you'll advance a thesis, but then you will turn around and you will adopt the voice of a critic. You know, somebody who is is not convinced by your thesis to start with and is, is going to be pointing out potential flaws, cross-cultural, you know, translating languages about emotion or talk of emotion from one language to another. If I were talking to somebody for whom English was not their native language, but they did speak some English, and I just asked them to, you know, name three emotions, and they said crying, yelling, and hitting. I would think, no, you've misunderstood the question. Mm -hmm. Those are not emotions. Emotions are internal states, which can sometimes prompt behavior, and you're describing the behaviors. So what are the, name some words that, you know, correspond to internal states. And I could be wrong about that. I could just be flat wrong. <laughs> so talk well, about that. As you know, from having listened to the book, I thought the same way. When I started my studies, I asked uh, Turkish and Surinamese people in the in the Netherlands, immigrants to the Netherlands, to list feelings. And my idea was, actually, my idea of that study was then I could find the words for anger, happiness, uh, sadness, you know, that they used most often. That was the, the point of that study. And to my big surprise, I did find that, especially the Turkish group, listed a lot of emotion words that were actually 
behaviors. And I did exactly what you said. I thought, well, these are not inner feelings. They have it wrong. And so I took them out and then I dutifully listed the words that they had used for anger and happiness. And what I say in the book is, how was I so sure that those were not emotions? And how I proceed in the book is to say that the way weird cultures perceive emotions is not the way that other cultures necessarily perceive emotions. And so when a lot of people, when they, a lot of peoples, I should say, in a lot of cultures, people talk about, about emotions as either be, between people. And so then, you know, and, and not highlighting the feeling so much, but what happens between people. Or in some cultures also, people describe their emotions purely in physical or almost exclusively in physical terms. So this idea that feelings are the abstract cognitive parts of our of our emotions, and, and that that is really the core, is probably a very cultured um, idea. And not that I think that words are defining of experiences, but I think that the language gives us a clue about how people think about the domain of emotions. And the term emotions wasn't invented in Western culture or in English until the 19th century. And in many cultures, emotions include things like either emotion and social situations or emotions and cognitions or emotions and what we would call physical sensations. So what I say in the book is that it's not so clear from the outside where the boundaries of this domain should be drawn. We're drawing it one way, but that may already be uh, a cultural part of our emotion knowledge. How we draw the boundaries may be, may be culturally different. Um, well, we are individualistic in our cultural orientation. You know, yeah. our emotions. It's my Very experience. <laughs> yeah, it's my experience, my emotions, and. We, are, we have come to rely more and more on our own feelings. And, you know, one of the ways to look at that is um, I listened to some of your previous podcasts, so I, I know that I can associate. But one of the ways to, to look at that is that we don't share a lot of norms or um, absolute norms anymore of behavior. And so, you know, what, what we, how we make choices in life, what we are to become how we are to be, behave, who we are to marry, all of those things, um, for all of those things, we now rely on our feelings. But this is not necessarily the case in all cultures and certainly hasn't always been the case in, let's say, Western cultures in, you know, in previous times. So I think one reason that we so focus on what it feels like is that that's what we need to go by. Maybe not what we need to go by, but what, what we go by in this culture a lot. We choose our own marriage partners. Why? Because we feel good about them, right? We prefer this ice cream. Why? Because we feel good about it. It tastes good. So it's not that somebody tells you who the marriage partner is in our culture. So I think that's one of the, I mean, it's a reason that has been quoted for subjectivity in general, but I think it's, it's part of the importance of emotional subjectivity as well. But so to come back to your to your question about, about the listing, who says crying is not an emotion? I mean, that's a matter of definition. And maybe some cultures would be more inclined to count culture in their 
definition of emotions than we are. We would certainly recognize it as an emotional behavior most of the time, you know, unless you're cutting the onions, but that's an exception. But we wouldn't say that is emotion, but what, by which we mean that the experiences that go with that, we do not count as an emotion per se. We, our definition of emotion hinges on something that is happening inside us rather than outside us. Well, with crying in particular, I mean, one could be crying because they're feeling grief. Somebody could be crying because they're very happy or they could be crying from a feeling of nostalgia. Uh, the behavior is pretty similar in all three cases, but the internal experience is quite different. So it's it's quite difficult for me to get my head around the idea that crying itself, which to me is a behavior, uh, is an emotion. It, it just doesn't seem to map up with my intuitive notion of what an emotion is. No, I can. I mean, I can confirm that it doesn't map up your intuitive notion of what a, what an emotion is. But if you were to define an emotion by the outward behavior or by what effect it has to other people or by the circumstances in which it happens, then maybe it could be an emotion. So the fact that we you're going back to the definition of emotions as something that happens inside you and you're rightfully pointing out that crying can go with a lot of different things inside you. But maybe, maybe in some definitions uh, of emotions, what you feel inside is not the first criterion of defining it as an emotion. And so I know that there, um, there are cultures where, um, for crying, I don't know, I do, I do know that people, some people talk about, some cultures talk about crying more when they see a face who's going to cry. Um, then they talk about sadness and they talk about laughing more than they talk about happiness. So, I mean, it's it's clear that some cultures are more focused on the outward behaviors than on the in, inside uh, feelings. And you could say, who cares, right? You cry, you, say, you immediately go back to the feelings and you say, well, crying is one of the expressions of that feeling that is the core of my definition of emotions. But if you did it the other way around, you could say, well, it's crying. And, you know, and that happens to coincide with a feeling of loss in this case, or a feeling of awe in another case. So, I mean, it's, it's, not, it's not necessarily worse or better than, than the other way. I'm just saying people use different criteria to say that they're uh, emotional. So another example is in many cultures, shame is described by a situation so a violation of honor, for example, or somebody else, or your, you yourself violate your honor. And it's defined by certain behaviors, casting your eyes down, withdrawing, trying to avoid it. Feelings co-occur, but they're not the defining characteristic of shame in those cultures. So whether or not you feel the shame and whether or not it's, it's a shame shame, you know, it's not important in saying that person is ashamed or I am ashamed. Well, shame, shame is a fascinating uh, example because, uh, as I mentioned, I've, I've lived in Japan and in the United States, uh, you know, a parent who deliberately and repeatedly 
caused their child to feel shame would be considered a, an abusive parent. That's just emotional abuse. Whereas in Japan, that's that is something that a you know a parent would do just to help their child get along better in society and and be a better citizen. And what really struck me was the example you gave, and I had never experienced this myself, but in a job interview in a, a number of Asian countries. A job interviewer might invite the applicant early on to relate something that made them feel shame. Whereas, you know, here in the United States, if somebody is trying to get me to feel shame, they're my enemy. They're trying to do me harm. And if somebody yeah. asked me that in a job interview, I would immediately wonder whether this is a place I actually wanted to work. Right. You know, I mean, that, that would be a very weird thing to do, particularly early on. I mean, that's sharing that is something that you would share with somebody with whom you had developed, you know, a feeling of trust right. over a long period. That's not something you just lead with, but you can lead with that in some cultures and it helps break the ice and set everybody at ease. That's just right. a really strange thing. Right. Well, there, there are several things I have to say about that. And first, I, I do have a whole chapter in my book that talks about the different ways in which we socialize emotions and, and shame is one of them. There, there are many cultures in which shame is a good emotion to feel for a child because it means that they take their proper place in the hierarchy to get along, as you said. But it's also good to realize that that shame isn't actually the same shame as we experience in a lot of ways. It is the same in that it's very clear that we've done something wrong. It's also the the same shame in the and and that's why we translate those words in the sense that we. You know, we we understand we did something wrong and we're expressing um, a willingness to conform to the norms. I think in in that sense, shame is is similar, but it actually isn't so much a negative emotion in many cultures. So in many cultures, shame means that you're a good person who gets it, who gets your place in the hierarchy. And that, for example, in the there's research with Taiwanese mothers and their kids. And it elaborately describes how Taiwanese mothers are really happy when their kids express shame. What worries them is a, is a kid that is shameless because a kid that is shameless is not well raised and uh, will cause you to lose face. And so when a kid is shamed, that's actually a thing for a mother to be proud of. And also it means that you as a child get your mom's love in a way. So you, your shame buys you into the trusting and loving relationship with your mom. So it's, it's a sense of inclusion. I, I will also say that people have found that um, Bagazzi, a marketing professor, has done research on uh, salespeople in the Philippines and in the Netherlands. And they found that, again, shame happens in very similar situations. So, for example, when you when you can't meet a promise that you made to a to a customer, but in the in the Philippines, the shame meant that the salespeople reached out, and as a result of that, um, their sales actually went up. It's all self-reported, but anyway, that's the that's the idea. In the Netherlands, much as it would be in in the U.S., I think um, shame made you withdraw. And then the sales would go down. So be careful when you say we would never do that to our kids. Shame is highly related with depression in many Western cultures. It isn't in, in Japan, for example. 
So I, I don't think it's, you know, in all of those connotations, it's not the same. And that's one of the points of my book, I think, to say, don't think you know what you mean when you say shame, you know, because it is a very different emotion, even though maybe some of the basic dynamics are similar, the way it fits in the desired relationships and the way other people respond to it are very different. So the function that it has in those relationships is very different. And that, I think, is exactly the point of, of the book I wrote, is that it's not to say that, you know, that there isn't something like shame if you mean, you know, I submit myself or I realize that I violated the norms, I, I want to be part of this group or I want to be accepted. All of that, of course, happens across cultures. But then what it means, what kind of behavioral consequences it has, what kind of social consequences it has, and also, I, I would say, what kind of feeling connotation it has is very different. So when shame begets your acceptance, it's not the most horrible emotion you can have. But when shame, so that's in a lot of other cultures, when shame, as in many Western cultures, but I think especially in the US, when shame means that you didn't live up to the one thing that is important, namely feeling good about yourself, <laughs> and I come back to the feeling good about yourself, uh, then that can be a very destructive emotion. And that's, in fact, what, um, what psychologists have found in Western context. But you can't infer from that that shame is always a bad emotion. And in some contexts, in some relationships, it's a good emotion. So I think for educators, this is also really important to know that parents who shame their kids are not necessarily abusing their kids. It very much depends on the cultural context in which it's done and the social implications that it has and the connotations. There's a variety of shame that you mentioned in the book that you haven't talked about here in this conversation yet. And uh, because I was listening to the audiobook, I don't know how it was written, but I, I, I envisioned it as a hyphenated um, shame rage. Mm -hmm. How was that written in the book? I think I say humiliated shame. In, in the West, one of the things that was known from, psycho, from psychoanalysis, for example, is that shame, shame is so painful um, that we often blame somebody else. And it has a name in, in psychoanalysis that I can't recall at this point. But, and the idea was that uh, shame often makes people aggressive. We don't find that so much in, in Japan. And probably because shame is not so bad, and because anger isn't particularly good in Japan, but we right. simply don't do not find that if Japanese college students, this was uh, report shame, that they turn that into into anger. And that is what we do find what, what we and others have found for Americans. I think the example given in the books was with um, prisoners who had served their time and been released. Yeah. Uh, those who had felt shame, some of them uh, directed that outward, you know, they blamed others, they blamed society, and they yeah. were far more likely to reoffend. Yeah, yeah reoffend. Ab absolutely. It's a really interesting study by um, Jane Tagney and her colleagues, uh, and they followed up prisoners, and they, they did find that those who were, were ashamed and also angry or more ashamed turned angry were the were the most likely reoffenders. Yeah, and it's so it does happen a lot. You wouldn't expect that in in Japan in the same way. It hasn't been studied in Japan in the same way, but it's a very striking study. I think so too. I mean, being able to predict whether somebody re uh, reoffends is a, is a real outcome that 
we psychologists don't have that many real outcomes, but this is a real one. Yes. Yeah, so it's not to say that shame isn't a destructive emotion in the context of the United States. It can be, but it is in part not because of shame, but because what we do with shame, what shame looks like in our culture, what it stands for, and, and that is not necessarily what it stands for in other cultures. And what we found is more broadly that findings about emotions and how they predict, for example, well-being. I mentioned the, the association between shame and depression. We don't find they replicate in other cultures. So in other words, it's not that a certain emotion always has these consequences. It is that a certain emotion, as it gets meaning and content in a culture, as it behaves in the relationships of the culture, can predict certain things. And we find that with health outcomes, we find it with mental health outcomes, but we also find it with physical health outcomes. We find, for example, that positive, exciting emotions uh, is something that Americans do well with, and they do well with physical on all kinds of physical measures. They do well with in terms of the lack of depression. But this is not a predictor for Japanese people or Chinese people. Neither well-being is predicted, so no, neither depression nor physical outcomes. And sometimes it's calmness that rather predicts um, these outcomes in um, cultures like Japan and China. One interesting um, finding in this study that I just reported was that Americans could recognize that sometimes it was better if to be asked by a friend to do something inconvenient than not. But they also thought that when you were asked that you had a certain kind of control in the situation. For Japanese, so there's always this individual agency that seems to play an important role. For Japanese, that's not the point. I mean, taking care of somebody is emphasizing, is underlining the relatedness between people, the trust between people. But it's not that some one person gives control to another person. It's being taken care of. It's being accepted fully. It's being complimented, if you will, where you need it. But it's, it's not so much the giving of the giving or taking of control. So I think it's a, you know, a few things. Yes, it has, of course, it's meaningful that they have a word and we do not. Because often when we have a word, that's the kind of instances that we can more readily interpret. Second is, even if we understand some of those instances, we don't understand the web of meaning and the web of instances that as they exist in Japan. And even if we can recognize or say, translate the word into some words like to be babied, um, that doesn't mean that we have the same emotions. Well, that's the eternal question is, uh, yeah, we have these, these words which seem to correspond to words in other languages. Uh, and we, you know, in our language, it means a certain feeling, but even then we, we're not sure that other people even experience what we experience, you know? No, um, no. But, yeah, how, how does one know eventually uh, whether or not we just have this rough correspondence that's good enough for us to get along or if we really do have a window into other people's feelings, uh, you know, cross-culturally? How, how much certainty could you ever really have? Well, I would say, I mean, it's a mind kind of, so in my book, I make the distinction between mind emotions, so mental feelings inside the person and and ours feeling, so outside of the person relational acts. And I think it's a very mind question because it's, can we really get into somebody's hat and see their real mental feelings? 
I would say, no, we can't. We can't really go into somebody's hat and see their real feelings. I, I cannot get into your hat and see, we, we speak the same language, at least we do now, <laughs> but we can't see in each other's hats to see exactly the feelings. But what we can do is infer behavior, even make pretty good predictions about where our interaction is going, given the relationship and the, and the, and the things that happens in, in our context. And I think that's really what you do when you look across cultures, but even within cultures, when you try to make sense of each other's emotions is to infer what people, what people's intentions are, what they're about from both their behaviors and their context. And I think we can go far in understanding, especially when we ask or, or look for clarification about what the situation means, how they, you know, what their behavior means. So, you know, I'm not a pessimist about human relationships across cultures. To the contrary, I think that if we become aware that we can't just read each other's feelings like, you know, telepathy, and we can't within a culture, and we certainly can't between cultures, I think that's a starting point for really trying to understand each other. You mentioned that you've listened to uh, previous episodes of this podcast. I'm I think you've listened to my conversation with Richard Firth Godby here, who wrote a book on similar topics. Uh, he was dwelling more on history, though, and how things, how talk about emotions have changed over time, you know, in in the English context for the, the most part. But even going back before English was um, really a freestanding language. And I wonder if in listening to that, there were any threads that you picked up on that uh, we could continue in this conversation. And if the answer to that is no, I can withdraw the question and we can edit it out. No, 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 no. I uh, no. I thought it was a really interesting conversation, and I do not see geographical cultures that different from historical cultures. I mean, I think that what a culture is is how people do and understand their relationships with each other. I mean, this is a little short, but you know, that's that might be a summary. And so, how people related to each other, what they found important was also different in our ancestors, or even he, he talks about Greeks. Um, so in that sense, I think it's very similar. He talks a lot about words, and you may remember earlier in our conversation, I said language is also culture, but it's not the only thing. So, so I found a lot in his conversation. I thought, um, I very much agree with him that we all have a body but that beyond that, a lot of emotions are cultural and that people have done uh, emotions differently uh, historically and do so across cultures. What I missed in the conversation with him is um, were other people. So I felt that in, you know, one of the reasons why cultures, why emotions in cultures get different meaning and why people experience emotions differently is because we always do emotions with other people and, you know, we build them in our relationships. And that is his view was cultural, but it's left out the, in the contemporaneous interaction, I would say. How people respond to you in, you know, in the same time, what other people have, what associations other people have, what they would expect. So in the example, again, of the Taiwanese people or the Japanese people um, eliciting shame in their children, one way it's, it's between the mother and the child, and it's about the expectations of the larger environment, about what a mother and how a mother and a child feel and behave. But so 
one of the things that I missed in the in in Rick's commentary was that people actually do things together about their emotions. I mean, like the person in the in the chat said, your 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 mother says, save your tears for another time. <laughs> and that influences what how you're crying. But but even more, I mean, I can be angry if nobody responds to it, or if I, if that's uh, considered immature, for example, which it which it is in in many cultures, I won't have my anger in the same way as when people respond to it and give me due respect or what I want more when I'm angry. So I thought, and that of course. This, the social life of emotion also differs across cultures. And that's true across historical cultures as well as, let's say, across time and place. Uh, the statement, we all have a body, you know, there, there's a premise that we can build upon, is itself not all that stable. There's not a lot of agreement on what we all have a body entails. People I've noticed tend to choose their scientific beliefs or their beliefs about the world in accordance with their political or their cultural, you know, commitments. So people on from a certain segment of, of the political left are very insistent that, you know, bodies aren't particularly important. They don't determine anything, really, that pretty much everything that we consider consequential about the human experience is created by culture. It is culturally constructed, they would say. And other people go to the absolute opposite extreme and they're genetic determinists and they're like, nope, um, you know, it's all in the genes and, you know, what country you come up in, it, it determines what language you speak, but that's about it. Everything else is, is really hardwired. And surely there is some of each at work. And there was a, a phrase that you used in your book, and I'm not sure I wrote it down exactly, but it's something to the effect of um, our biological nature is equipped for nature. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how does that relate to the, you know, the dispute over nurture versus nature? Mm -hmm. Well, I think the gene culture distinction is no longer relevant as we know that gene expression is completely dependent on the culture or the environment. I mean, I, I don't mean to say culture, but every aspect of the environment, every aspect of our experiences that we live. And so I would certainly, I would be the last one to say that everything is culture. I mean, we start with a body, we end with a body. <laughs> Um, there's certainly processes in the body that influence our affective lives. There's no denying. But how there are multiple ways in which culture comes in. One way is that the kinds of experiences we have are just large, vastly different across different cultures, but also across different times, across different socioeconomic um, milieus. And we know that gene expression is very different. I mean, gene expression is a high level, but um, you know, all kinds of bodily processes are dependent on the kinds of experiences you have. They express or evolve in a way that is responsive to and that is constituted further shaped by the experiences you have. And culture is a very strong divider of the kinds of experiences that you can have. So I certainly don't think everything is cultural, but I do think that we are built to be in a social world. I mean, the whole the whole idea, if you look at Michael Tomasella's work, for example, our difference with apes is that we can cooperate. 
that we are with other people, that we do coordinate our actions with other people. We have relationship with others and we do things together. This is what culture ultimately is, right? Doing things together, organizing things together, having a language in which we can communicate with each other. But beyond a language, having institutions, having rituals, having ways of doing things. And all of those, first of all, are enabled by the kind of animal that we are. So that's important. But then the way they're developed is also very dependent on our predecessors, on the language, the culture, the cultural structure that is there when we are born, and arguably also dependent on the experiences of your cohort, your family, your particular place in the world. So in terms of the um, old nature-nurture debate, I think it's over in a way. It isn't either nature or nurture. It's we have the nature to make a culture together. And of course, in turn, the kinds of cultures that we live in further shapes or allows or constrains the way in which our genes and all kinds of other processes develop and express themselves. And, you know, even in terms of vulnerability, we know that vulnerabilities are, of course, also biological for mental disease. But there often there is an interaction with whether they express themselves in terms of mental disease uh, is often in, dependent on what kind of environment you end up in. And so even in terms of health and not health, I think environments are important. Now, how much is meaningfully described at the cultural level? That depends what you call culture, I think. You know, there's a lot of culture that is not usually described as culture. There's a lot of, you know, we know that our relationships with our primary caregiver are very important for how we develop in the rest, in the remainder of our life. So I think for me, the question of is it all culture or is it completely culturally constituted that's an absurd question. No, culture wouldn't even exist without us having a body that can make culture and that, yes. you know, that creates us. So, you know, then the question becomes, are there specific mechanisms that are, you know, well-defined and always work in the same way that are the basis of a certain emotion? This is in the emotion. And there I would say, no, we certainly draw on abilities that we have. we and, and that's what Rick, um, your previous guest said too. I mean, emotions are complicated processes. They draw on memory, they draw on physiological uh, preparedness, they draw on motor systems. I mean, all of that. But I don't think they're unique. There may be small part. I mean, there, there may be a freezing part in us, but that's not an emotion. That's freezing. And we may draw on that in some of our emotional episodes, but that doesn't mean that the emotion is that. So purely na nature, no, I don't think so. Uh, purely culture, I don't even know what that's about. <laughs> and, you know, in a way... In a way, I also don't know what nature is about without an environment. There is no such thing as a brain, you know, in a vacuum or a body in a vacuum. We always live in environments that shape who we become. And that starts as early as the uterus. Um, you know, and of course, there is, there is, there is much to find out about. But I think, I think in terms of the, the discussion of is it all nature or is it all culturally constituted? I think we as a science are way beyond beyond that. Pretty obviously a false dichotomy. Mm -hmm. I yeah. think so, yeah. Well, 
Professor Bacha Mesquita, I've very much enjoyed your book. I've enjoyed our time together. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed our time together too. Thank you, Kim. All right. That was Professor Bacha Mesquita. Again, her book is Between Us, How Cultures Create Emotions. So what do you think? Is it possible for just a single person by themselves to experience emotions? Now, I'm not saying that uh, Professor Mesquita says it's impossible, but I spend the vast majority of my time alone. Now, a lot of that time is spent in communication with other people via different platforms, different mediums, some of them real time, some of them asynchronous. But a lot of it is spent just alone, you know, either consuming media or working out, taking walks, petting a cat. Now, you might say that with the cat, <laughs> I'm not alone. And uh, cat owners know that they can push our buttons and we can get irritated with cats. Although I think mostly just their presence and their physical contact is, is a comfort and a soothing element in our emotional lives. But I do spend a lot of time without any other humans around, and my thoughts just keep rolling along, and sometimes they bring up emotions. Or, you know, it feels that way to me. And really, can I be wrong about my internal states, or about my subjective experience of those internal states? Aren't I pretty much the authority? I phrase that as a rhetorical question, but I guess it is an open question. All right, on the topic of... Cross-cultural differences, misunderstandings, learning to communicate across that cultural gap. I recorded a conversation a few weeks back with Simon Eger. He is the proprietor of a website called Omniglot, and he speaks a lot of languages. His native language is English, and he is fluent in French, Welsh, Mandarin Chinese, and Irish. He describes himself as being semi-fluent in German, Japanese, Spanish, Scottish Gaelic, and Esperanto. I don't know that I've ever spoken to anybody else who speaks Esperanto, a language which is supposedly, you know, it's an artificial language that was created to facilitate cross-cultural communication. He also says that he has limited knowledge of Cantonese, Taiwanese, Italian, Portuguese, Dutch, Russian, Czech, Breton, British Sign Language, Romanian, Swedish, Cornish, Tokipona. And if you don't know what that is, well, I didn't either, but you'll find out in this conversation. And finally, Latin. That's a lot of languages. I have attempted to learn Spanish and haven't gotten very far with it, I have to say. Uh, there have been times when I have been in Spanish-speaking environments, and it seems like I start picking up the language pretty quickly, and I always vow that I'm going to continue studying systematically when I get back home and I do for a little while, and then the immediacy wears off, and I don't. I also lived in Japan, twice, for a year each time, and I took a lot of Japanese language courses in college. And for all that, I speak just enough Japanese for, you know, a Japanese person to listen to me speak and believe that I did live in Japan for a time. But my comprehension is bad. I mention that not just to brag, or humble brag, <laughs> saying... I've lived abroad, but, you know, my language skills are not so good. But the conversation that you're about to hear is not the entire conversation. The first part, we just can't use it because of some technical issues that made the sound quality unusable. So we pick up seemingly at random in a conversation about Japanese. And very early on in the conversation, I try to come up with the name of an author of a book, uh, and I utterly fail to do so. But the name of the person that doesn't come to me in real time is James W. Heisig. 
He is a senior research fellow at the Nanzan Institute for Religion and Culture at Nanzan University. And uh, I have met Professor Heisig, although I'm sure he doesn't remember me, and I've heard him give several lectures, a couple of them, on how he learned the kanji. And if you don't know what the kanji is, well, that comes up very early in the conversation you're about to hear with Simon Ager. Japanese has uh, three character sets. There, there are two which are phonetic, uh, katakana and hiragana, but then they also use thousands of different Chinese characters, which they call kanji. Uh, mm. When you approached learning Japanese, um, oh, I'm, I forget the gentleman's name now, but there's a, a very smart gentleman um, who, at last I knew he was teaching at Nanzan University in Nagoya, Japan, and he wrote a book about learning and memorizing the kanji. Uh, but he also, in his personal story, he said that, you know, he, he went, he moved to Japan as a young man, and he asked, what's the hardest part of learning Japanese? And everybody said, oh, it's the kanji. So he decided he was going to do that first, before he learned any vocabulary, before he learned <laughs> any grammar. Uh, he was just going to learn the kanji. And he, you know, locked himself in a room with lots of materials, and in a few months, did it. Mm. And he pioneered this method for learning the kanji. I certainly did not take that approach. Uh, mine was definitely, you know, the things that I remember from Japanese are the things that I would say in daily life, you know. Yeah. The, sure. the, the more complex and, and less used stuff uh, I did not really retain. So what was your relationship to learning the different, like the two syllabaries and the, the you know, collection of Chinese characters that the Japanese use? How many did you acquire? Uh, well, I, I tried to learn more. But as, as, as my degree was in Chinese and Japanese, I was learning two languages at the same time. And I was learning Chinese characters, both simplified and traditional characters, and kanji and hiragana and katakana. And I went to Taiwan in my second year. I had to learn a new script in the Bopo Mofo or Jiwin Hao, which is a phonetic script, a bit like um, katakana. It looks a bit like similar. And they use that to show pronunciation in textbooks for learners and children. Well, hiragana and katakana, you can learn in a couple of days. It's it's not... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Kanji, kanji and, and Chinese characters, hands, as they call it in Chinese, they take a lot longer to learn. Now, in my first year, they gave me a, a box of these paper cards with kanji on them. Well, they were Chinese characters, actually. They had the character on one side and the meanings on the other side and the pronunciation. And they said, learn these in this year. And there was like... 13 or 1400 characters to learn in a year. Wow. <laughs> so I was learning every day. I tried to learn more. And when I knew them, I'd stick them on my wall so I'd see them every day. And that reminded me of them. And I'd brighten them out many, many times and then try and make up little stories based on the parts of the kanji. Mm -hmm. yeah, there's various methods you can do that. You can break them down to parts. And I tried to make mental images to connect the, the shape of the kanji with the meanings and the sounds. And Part of his prescription was don't learn to read them, learn to write them. Mm. You know, hear hear the English word and write. Yeah. Preferably on paper, but you know, with your finger on your palm if that's all you have available, but write it. Don't just remember how to recognize the characters. Yeah, I think both are important. I mean, these days it's much easier to import characters on a computer or a phone. You can even speak them if you know how to pronounce them, or you can write them out by hand, or you can just write out the phonetic. In Japanese, the romaji in Chinese, pinyin. And that makes typing a lot easier. 
particularly if you can just speak it. Yeah, but when I'm doing my Japanese lessons on Duolingo, I often write things out because it helps me remember them. As you say, writing, you get the physical memory of the, the shapes of the characters, and that does help, does help me remember them. And as I'm kind of relearning it, because I haven't used it for a long time, I kind of have a lot of knowledge already, but it's kind of more difficult to access because I haven't used it for so long. So I'm kind of gradually reawakening my knowledge of Japanese, I could say. <laughs> After how long? Well, I graduated in 1994. Oh, okay. So you were learning it about the same time I did. Yeah. I, I lived in Japan in the early 90s. Right. So if you were starting out just acquiring your first language today, would you be doing anything differently? I mean, obviously you wouldn't be 11, so you wouldn't have that option. Sure, exactly. Was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, re relying a lot less on books and using apps and websites and, and videos and all that stuff. And being able to connect with people through the internet is amazing. You know, I've, I've found all sorts of interesting people through language exchange sites and you know, chat sites and all that sort of thing to practice my languages and they become friends. So languages aren't just spoken, they're written as well. Absolutely. And yeah. your website, Omniglot, is uh, is a repository of a great many, you know, scripts and not, I think some of them are even made up, like uh, people, you know, who yeah, are... Yeah, there's, there's hundreds of made up scripts there, yeah. Are, are there any made up scripts that get widely adopted that have a community of people who are dedicated to them? I think the only ones I know of of um, are the kind of Lord of the Rings ones mm -hmm. that Tolkien invented, like uh, Tengwire, used for the Elvish languages. And people get tattoos in that, and they you know, write wedding invitations and poetry and calligraphy and stuff. That's a popular one. So Tolkien's uh, invented languages, they're rich. And I think it's because he, you know, he spoke a variety of languages himself, and he was a scholar of languages. And uh, he, he drew heavily, what was it, from Icelandic? Yeah, um, Icelandic, Welsh, Old Norse, mm -hmm. um, various other European languages, I think. Latin, probably. <laughs> now, when I hear the characters in the movies speaking, I'm not sure if it's Sundaran or Quenya, I, I'm not any sort of Tolkien expert, but um, they, they have a very Celtic sound to me, you know, to my ear, my untrained ear. Well, Sundaran is kind of based loosely on Welsh. Which one is? Sindarin. Mm -hmm. And Quenya is based on Finnish. Have you made any effort to acquire those languages? <laughs> no. No? No, I'm familiar with the script, but not, not with the languages. Uh, I was obsessed for a time with uh, the Klingon language. <laughs> and I, I had memorized all the dialogue from Star Trek Three. you know, all the Klingon dialogue. Mm. <laughs> it's in my teenage years. Yeah, I, ha I have friends who speak it fairly well, actually. For a time, it was the fastest growing language in the world. I, I think that time has <laughs> yeah. passed. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the languages you mentioned that I, I've studied is Tokipona. Mm -hmm. What is that? And you said you didn't know what that I, was. Not a clue. It was invented by a woman called Sonia Lang. I think she's Canadian. Or she might be American. I can't remember. But her idea was to invent a language with a, a small vocabulary. It only has 125 words. Oh, wow. And to see if you could express, you know, everyday things just using that, that small number of words. And what's the result? So every word has 
So there's loads of different meanings. So whatever you say is highly ambiguous. <laughs> okay. It depends on context. So you, you might know what you're saying, but someone listening might interpret it in a completely different way. So it seems like that would be a language for uh, maximum deniability. That's not what I meant. <laughs> yeah. You're interpreting yeah. me all wrong. You know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like using emoji. You know, you can use, you, you know what you mean when you use them, but anybody else looking at them will, might interpret them in a completely different way. <laughs> I, uh, I remember hearing a radio story. I was living in New York City at the time, and it was on, I think it was on the local New York City uh, NPR station. And they were talking about emojis. And I was like, what are you talking about? This is nothing new. Emoticons have been around forever. And I didn't, I didn't grasp the difference. You know, the emoticon are the little images that you make by typing, you know, different letters and symbols on your keyboard, whereas an emoji is just a graphic, you know, somebody yeah. in Paint Shop or Photoshop or whatever program, you know, they just created a little picture. And uh, I didn't quite understand what they were talking about. But wow, since then emojis have proliferated and yeah you, you yeah. pretty much i i am not skillful at at searching through these enormous you know palettes of them and and finding one but some people can just throw them up on screen as quick as they can type letters it's i don't even yeah. understand the process <laughs> yeah yeah um I, i'm not that great at them i know how to use some of them you know but there's there's so many now and they keep on adding new ones I, I use the thumbs up one a lot. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty <laughs> I unambiguous. I use various faces, a smiley face and yeah. laughing and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, but you look through the list of them and there's like every flag, every country's flag is listed there and like every every article of clothing, every piece of construction <laughs> equipment. It's like, when do you ever need a backhoe emoji? Why? Who knows? <laughs> Yeah. You know, speaking of uh, the Klingon language, James Doohan, who played Scotty in the original Star Trek, he made up just the fragments of Klingon that you hear in the first Star Trek movie. Mm. And then for Star Trek three, they hired a linguist. I think his name is Mark Ockrand. Um, That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. To flesh it out and make a, a whole language, which he did. But then... You know, the, the Klingon characters who were speaking, uh, particularly Christopher Lloyd, who played the, the Klingon captain, he would get things wrong. You know, he would get the language wrong, but the acting was so good that Leonard Nimoy, the director, was like, well, no, we're keeping that take. So then the linguist would have to come in and say, OK, let's change the language. How can we yeah. reformulate the language so that what you just <laughs> said is proper Klingon? And that happened mm. repeatedly. <laughs> so Yeah, you, well, you that's kind all... of how real languages evolve, isn't it? You know, mm -hmm. people mispronounce things and then pronounce things in different ways. And then that becomes a standard if enough people do it or use words in different ways. Talking about the movements of, of ancient peoples, you know, when a group of people move to a new location, they often will need to start speaking the language of the people, you know, who already live there. And of course, their children will speak that language fluently, but they themselves, you know, being the first generation immigrants, will be speaking two languages, but one of them quite imperfectly. Yeah, exactly. And, and cultures grow yeah. up around that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, particularly in the United States, because we have so many immigrants <laughs> from so many different countries, you know, there, there are many stereotypes yeah. like, you know, the Italian grandmother, mm. you know, who's always trying to feed you and who, who speaks maybe 20% English and 80% Italian. <laughs> you know, that sort of <laughs> yeah. thing. Exactly. That's, that's how new forms of language emerge. 
languages merge and influence each other, and then you have new languages or new dialects or whatever they, you want to call them. I mean, the, the difference between a language and a dialect is a very fuzzy one. There's no standard definition. My mother's sister, so my aunt, uh, she married a man from Greece and, you know, they had kids together. They've lived their whole lives in New York City. And, you know, he has lived most of his life in the United States speaking English most of the time. And he has a thick Greek accent, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like if you don't get the accent right almost immediately, you're pretty much stuck with, you know, whatever you bring to it, it seems. Mm. It, it takes a lot of dedication to, to acquire a different accent. Now, once you get used to speaking in a certain way. I mean, in Japan, the way people learn English, you know, using Japanese-style pronunciation. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you, you know all about that. So that's very difficult to change. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, they, you know, they don't have consonants and vowels. They just have the syllabary. So they have characters yeah. which represent sounds. And, you know, they almost all end in an, uh, a vowel sound of some sort. So getting them to say anything that ends with a consonant is real. I mean, I taught English in Japan, so I, you know, I struggled with this <laughs> yeah. day after day for, for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. So getting them to say anything that ends with like a T or a P, mm. you know, without them putting a, a P or a PO or a P or something, you know, to, yeah. to make it sound like a, a Japanese syllable. It's, it's a struggle. Mm. Yeah. But what I discovered was that, you know, I made an effort to learn Japanese pronunciation pretty well. And what that did was it implied to Japanese speakers that my Japanese language skills were much better than they actually were. Uh, yeah. So I would say something that sounded pretty good in Japanese, and then they would say something back to me, which I couldn't follow. <laughs> you know, <so laughs> there, is, there is a benefit yeah. to having a thick accent in the beginning, but yeah, sure. you know, the longer you wait to get rid of it, the harder it is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I have friends who um, have acquired amazing English accents. You know, as adults, they've managed to to sound like a native English speaker from England or America, and it's it's perfectly possible to do. But it takes a lot of work. You've got to really focus on your pronunciation of individual individual sounds and how they go together. And a lot of people just don't have the time or or will to do that. Well, with English, there's a lot, a lot of media, you know, that you can take in. Oh, yeah, you. of course. Yeah, sure. And, and I think with English as well, because so many people learn it as a second or foreign language. Mm -hmm. you now, we're used to hearing people who have different accents, but of smaller languages, say like Swedish or Danish or Icelandic or something, you know, people aren't so used to hearing foreigners speaking their language. Right. And they have more difficulty understanding foreign accents. So you've got to really work hard to, to get a local accent if you want to be understood well. Well, I've been on both sides of this where, you know, I'll take the native English speaker's perspective. I'm the native English speaker. I'm speaking to somebody who's speaking English as a second language, and they're saying a word in English, and I just can't understand what it is. And we'll go back <laughs> and forth. We'll say it again and again, and then it'll click in my head. It's like, oh, you're saying wolf. Okay, I get it. I hear it now. <laughs> but, but... Mm. their pronunciation wasn't that bad. Yeah. It, you know, it wasn't so far off. I should, it, you know, in hindsight, it seems like I should have been able to understand, but I just couldn't. And I've been yeah, on the other yeah, side of that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you meet someone from a different country or region who speaks English as a native language, you might not understand everything they say. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in Australia for a time and there was, 
There were a lot of times when I was smiling and nodding. I was like, I don't know what he just said. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, with with English, you know, British English, I grew up watching, you know, Doctor Who and, uh, you know, Monty Python and mm. uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Game. I mean, all of this, this British TV. Yeah. So, you know, hearing it from a kid, you know, from a child, it, it's very easy for me to understand and to, to mimic it. But what, you know, somebody in that situation doesn't get is there are many different British accents. Yeah, sure. And I was just hearing, you know, British English filtered through the BBC, mm. basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, and the same is true. I and mean, there's so many American accents. Mm. It is, oh, yeah. you know, this is a very, very large country. It's yeah. basically 50 countries, mm. you know. And so there's a lot of different accents. And I, I've noticed it's it's very amusing to me to hear native English speakers who are not from America try to do an American accent. Now, some of them are flawless, you know, because they're yeah. actors and they've made an effort. Yeah. But if, if they're just filtering, you know, American TV, basically, <laughs> and, and trying to replicate that, well, that's that's a fake accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like these memes you see on Instagram sometimes, um, like kind of this is how you speak British or whatever, Harry Potter, butter, and they're doing a, a stereotypical kind of London accent. Mm -hmm. Or trying to replicate it in writing. Oh, in writing. Yeah. There, you know, if you watch Hollywood movies from like the 30s through the, the 50s. Yeah. The, all the actors spoke in a made up dialect. Mm -hmm. uh, it was called Mid-Atlantic. Yeah. So it, it was supposed to be, you know, a combination of like upper class uh, East Coast American and, and British English. Mm -hmm. But it, it was a combination of the two that no actual human being really spoke unless you went to an expensive prep school on the East Coast of the United States. Yeah. Those were the only people who actually spoke that. But, yeah. you know, if you'd watch a movie, characters, you know, who are farmers in the middle of Kansas are supposed to be <laughs> speaking this accent. And, you know, it was just yeah. the accent of movies. Yeah. 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 Well, it's like in old um, BBC shows on radio and TV. Yeah, everybody spoke with a very posh British accent like this. You know, <laughs> RP, received pronunciation. Very precise. Uh, now there's a, there's a cachet to having a very working class British accents, mm. like particularly in, yeah. in music and, and rap and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, some people, when they sing, interestingly, they change their accent. Oh, yeah. You know, they'll have a... You know, whatever yeah. accent when they're speaking, but when they sing, it sounds more American sometimes. Uh, our, our producer says there's something similar with French in Canada. No one speaks like the presenters at the Francophone Radio Canada. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never listened to French language Canadian broadcasts, so mm. I can, couldn't say. Yeah, well, I think you get you get that in a lot of countries. The kind of radio voice is kind of they they train people to speak very clearly and precisely in a standard language. But um, in everyday speech, very few people actually speak like that. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about your website and uh, how you make a living. Okay. You've been building this website since the 20th century. Yeah. <laughs> and it is it is your livelihood now. How long did it take to uh, start generating enough income for you for it to really be your source? You know, your your livelihood. About 10 years. I mean, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. I just muddled along, made it up as I went along, and. Uh, somehow managed to, to build up enough visitors and advertisers started approaching me and I you know, signed up for affiliate programs. Um, and at the moment, most of my income comes from Google Ads. 
And what sort of community interactions do you have around the website? I mean, surely a lot of people are, are coming here. That's why it's worth yeah, the time that the advertisers. Yeah. yeah. Is there a forum? Um, there was a forum, but I shut that down because it was I was having technical problems with that. I mean, we have a lively group on on Facebook. There's an Omnilock fan club on Facebook, which um, there's a lot of discussions on there about all sorts of language related stuff. I post stuff on on YouTube and Instagram and TikTok. I make videos every week. Um, at the moment, I'm doing a series called um, Adventures in Etymology, where each time I choose a, I choose a word at random and then look at its roots and then see whatever word it's connected to. You know, something fascinating about English is just what a melange it is, how many different uh, ingredients from different uh, language groups go into yeah. it. Yeah, when, when you're looking at etymology, you know, you, you might find... You know, it comes from Middle English, from Old English, back from Proto-Germanic, back to Proto-European. That's a straightforward uh, Germanic etymology. But some words, you know, we borrowed them from French, and they borrowed them from Italian, and they got them from German, and they got them from somewhere else, and then he's been bouncing around. So you never know where words are going to come from. Well, Simon Egger, this has been a lot of fun. Thank it you has. very much. Yeah, this has been a pleasure. That was Simon Ager. Again, his website is omniglot.com. That's O-M-N-I-G-L-O-T.com. And if you are looking to learn a language, there are a lot of resources there. Although, as much as I hate to say it, the one resource is one that I think is pretty much an internal resource, and that is stick-to-itiveness. Gumption. The ability to conjure up and sustain will. And lacking that, at least the ability to form good habits. So in conclusion, let me just ask you to introspect and uh, hopefully send some feedback my way. What has been your experience with cross-cultural communication and uh, failures thereof? How many languages do you speak? How many times have you tried to learn a new language and um, didn't get very far with it? Or do you have amusing travel stories that involve linguistic misfires and other miscommunications? I've done a fair amount of traveling in my life, mostly in the earlier part of my life, not recently. But one thing I've discovered is that when you are far from home, even if you are in an environment where you don't speak the local language, one of the things you're going to learn almost immediately is the word that the locals use for foreigner. So in Japan, it's gaijin. In Thailand, it's farang. If you're traveling in Central America and you're from North America or Europe, particularly if you have light skin, it's gringo. And it's like a cocktail party effect. You know, there's just a, a background of indistinguishable noise, just talking sounds, but then somebody mentions your name and your name leaps out of that background mishmash and it's just clear as day. Well, the same thing is true of that word for foreigner when you are the foreigner in that foreign language environment. As social animals, we are very interested to know when somebody is talking about us. Another thing I've discovered is that language is rarely a barrier to spending money. If somebody has something to sell and you have money and you want what they have, well, they want what you have and you pretty much figure out how to make that exchange work. I guess these days there are all kinds of real-time translation apps on smartphones, but a lot of negotiations that I've engaged in in the past just took place with pocket calculators. 
people just punching up a number on the pocket calculator, showing it to me, and me shaking my head and hitting clear and punching in a different number, and they, they look at it and they shake their heads and they hit clear and they punch up another number. In the moment, it's kind of annoying, but in hindsight, it's very amusing. Actually, sometimes even in the moment, it's kind of fun. You know, I come from a culture where we don't haggle. You go to the store, there's a price marked on the item. If you have the money and you want it, you pay that price. Not like that in lots of the world, or at least it used to not be like that. And I'm sure in some places, uh, haggling is still a live art. If you have any fun stories involving haggling, let me know. All right, that brings us to the end. Thanks to the Padverb podcast team, executive producer Anna Haskell, producers Slava Borisov and Alina Voigt, and assistant producer Sonia Sa. And thanks to you, the listeners. I'll be back here in one week's time with another episode. I will talk to you then.